All right, I'm um, I'm gonna attempt some comedic relief this morning. All right, because I need it, and um, I think some of us also might. But I want you to imagine a scenario with me, and then I'm gonna ask you a question. Okay? So, <clears throat> let's say you have three kids, like a first grader. Uh, we'll say third and fifth grade, all right? And they hate school. They just hate school. And like every day they come home and like, oh, I, my teacher's so mean and there's so much drama and there's bullet. You know, they just hate school. And so you're like, you know what? I think our whole family's been under a lot of stress and we need a vacation. We just need a break. And so you save up your money and go to... Disney World, yes, okay, you see where this is headed. And a few of you do anyways. So um, you pack everybody up and you get in the car and it's like 30 minutes into the trip and they hate all the videos you downloaded for them to watch. <laughs> all the apps on the phone are boring. They are going to die of boredom. And you know, like it's awful. Your third grader, decides he cannot possibly eat the crackers you packed because they're stale. So if he does not get a cheeseburger, he is going to starve, right? So you pull off, you go through McDonald's drive-thru, you get the cheeseburger, you get everybody food, you're back on the road. Ten minutes later, he vomits it up. (sighs) You know, and so you clean all that up, you get back on the road again. And now your, your fifth grader is, he is just certain that you should be going through Indiana and not Ohio. You know, and, and that the GPS is wrong and you're gonna get lost. And then he start, starts hawking the speedometer. Like, every time you go over 70 miles per hour, uh uh-uh, uh, you hit 71. Dad's a criminal! driver we're gonna get a car accident you know and and this just like freaks out your first grader right and who starts crying i don't want to die i can't pull the car i want to get out of the car okay this is your road trip so my question is what state do you get to like, how far do you get in this road trip? Is Do you get out of Michigan? Do you make it to Tennessee? Where, how far do you get? Yeah, before you're like, so help me God, I'm going to turn this car back around. You know? Let's say, let's say you make it all the way to Disney World, okay? You are there, you're at the gates. And, and, and there's Goofy. And he's just like waving and greeting people as they're coming in. And your kids take one look at Goofy and like, what is that giant freak? You know, and, and they're like, oh, I'm not going in there. And your first grader starts to cry again. There's too many people. I'm going to get lost and I'll be stuck with a giant freak forever. You know, and, and they will not go in. They just like, mm. Won't do it. And you're like, come on, it's okay. Nope, they won't listen. What do you do? (laughs) Get new kids. 
right to be angry? Do you have a right to discipline your kids? We're in a series called The Story, which is understanding the Bible, not as a bunch of separate stories, but as one continuous story of God and his people. And we started in Genesis, which records how God created this world good. And then he created us in his image so we could rule over it. And he like gave us that responsibility and and we just broke the world. And um, we broke our relationships with each other and with God. And ever since then, God has been on this restoration and salvation process. And in Genesis, he comes to a guy named Abraham, not particularly a noble guy, in fact, a pretty messed up guy. And God says, follow me to a land I'll show you, and I will bless you and make you a blessing to all people. That through Abraham's descendants, somehow he's going to bless all people in the whole world. And Abraham believes God and he follows and he follows him to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And um, he has a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And then there's a famine. And Israel moves his whole family out of the promised land to Egypt. Where his son, Joseph, is the viceroy. And um, they're treated exceptionally well. They get really comfortable. And after the famine, instead of going back to the home God gave them, they just stay for 400 years. And their comfort becomes their bondage. Their comfort becomes their bondage. And a new Pharaoh comes to power, and he sees how the Israelite family has grown. Of course, this is a family... Because of Joseph, that was one of the most politically powerful families in Egypt. And the new Pharaoh is afraid of them. He thinks he's going to overthrow them. And so he preemptively enslaves them. And so they're slaves. They have oppressive work. They're getting beaten and whipped. And still Pharaoh is afraid of them. And so he just orders all their baby boys slaughtered. All of them. And God has mercy on the Israelites. He raises up Moses. He recruits them to confront Pharaoh and say, let my people go. I don't have a Charlton Heston voice. I'm sorry. I can do the whiny kid voice, but not the Charlton Heston (laughs) voice. Okay. Um, And anyways, let my people go. And, And Pharaoh refuses, right? And so God, he begins to fight for the Israelites. And he sends these plagues. He turns the Egyptians water into blood and then there's gnats and flies and frogs and darkness and hail and it's just like god is just throwing one punch after another he is fighting for them and he wins (laughs) he wins big time and the egyptians because of all these plagues they relent they let the israelites go but they not only let them go they give them gifts it's incredible God causes the Egyptians to favor the Israelites. The Bible doesn't exactly spell out why, but it's almost like as the Egyptians are getting hit with these plagues, they are realizing, this is the judgment of God. And they're getting convicted. We've been treating these people wrong. We've been enriched because we've enslaved them. And so they not only let their slaves go, but they give them wealth as well. 
Now, just because the Egyptian people repent doesn't mean Pharaoh and his military leaders repent. You know, so the Israelites there, they leave. They're following God. He's leading them by a pillar of fire. And um, Pharaoh and his Egyptian army decide they're going to try to pin him against the Red Sea. Right? And so they're coming in chariots. And the Israelites look up and they see them. Or I'm not quite there yet. But they see them. Um, and what do the Israelites say? They're like, how stupid are the Egyptians? You know, like, do, have they not seen the last, like, ten plagues? Do they not know that our God is fighting for us? This is going to be a great show. Let's let's see what God does. Is that what they say? No. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. You know, the ones that just slaughtered all their baby boys. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you're never going to see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. I love that last line. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And it it's amazing because God, when the... like. Israelites are freaking out and say it would be better for us to still be slaves. He's not like, seriously, guys, come on. Did you not see those last ten miracles I did for you? He He's patient with them. He's just patient. And he just steps right up to the plate and goes. And he parts the waters. And he's like, come on now. Come on. And he guides them through the Red Sea. And then when Pharaoh and his armies, they just, they just like foolishly follow, right? God's just like, and the waters come and just wash Pharaoh and his army away. And the Israelites are free. They have no more enemies to fear. And so God leads them. Now that they're out of Egypt, he starts to lead them back to that good homeland that he had promised Abraham and promised to give to Abraham's descendants. But they have to first go through the desert, and they make a couple stops along the way. All right, so I want you to grab your Bibles and open it to Exodus 15, verse 22. The the Bibles are marked with two post-its. The first post-it is Exodus 15, verse 22, all right? The first place they come to is the desert of Shur. Exodus 15:22 says that Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur. For 3 days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, 
They, ca- they could not drink its water because it was too bitter. That's why the place is called Mara. Mara means biz- bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. And he threw it in the water, and it became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling, an instruction for them, and put them to a test. He said, if you listen to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palms. And they camped there near the water. God doesn't get impatient when they complain about the water's taste. He just heals it. And then he uses that as an object lesson to say, look how easy it was for me to heal that water. And show him, I have that desire and power to heal you if you will just follow me and listen to my instructions. So next verse, um, chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. That sounds ominous. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Not just died in Egypt, but died by the Lord's hand. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. How do you think God felt when the Israelites said that? How do you think that made him feel? He's just like rescued them and did all these miracles. And now they're just saying, I wish you would have killed me instead. That had to hurt. But he doesn't get upset. He's still patient with them. He's still patient with them. The next verse, verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and it is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And so God, um, that night, he blows in this flock of quail, and it covers the whole camp, and everybody eats meat. And then the next morning, they come out, and God has rained down bread from heaven, manna. And all they have to do is go and like out their door and collect it. These people who were slaves, they had the most brutal labor. And God is basically taking away their work and giving them like the easiest job ever. Just go out your door, collect it in the morning, every morning. But but not the seventh day because you get a rest day. You see how gentle and good he is to them. And he says he's doing this to test them to see if they will... Trust him and obey his commands. So flip the page to Exodus 17. That's the next place they go. 
He's now raining down bread every morning for them, except the seventh day. All right? Their next step, chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt and make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Seriously. It's only been a couple months since all the miracles in Egypt and like... And it doesn't matter that God has made water sweet or that he blew in a flock of quail or that he rains down bread every morning, including that morning. That God is going to make them die of thirst. Verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I going to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. God is patient. He's still patient with them. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah. Because the Israelites quarreled and because they had tested God, saying, is God among us or not? And then from there, God leads them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he asks them to become his family, which I think is utterly astounding, considering how they've been treating him this whole time. I mean, if I was leading this group of kids... I'm not adopting them. I'm dropping them off at the next door stop, you know. But God, he He says to them, and the Bible kind of compares it sometimes to an adoption ceremony and sometimes the Bible compares it to a wedding ceremony. But God says, look, I want you to be my people. I don't want you to follow those gods that enslaved you. I, I want you to be mine and I want to be yours. And just as I fought for you and led you out of Egypt and I parted the Red Sea and I'm leading you now by a cloud at day to shield you from the desert heat and I'm leading you with fire at night so you can see and have warmth and I'm leading you to this good homeland and I'll bless you there. So be my children who follow me and I will be your heavenly father and God who provides and protects and guides you. And they say yes. The Israelites say yes. And so they have this beautiful little ceremony. And after the ceremony, um, God gives them instructions on how to build a house for them to live with him. It's a tabernacle. It's just a portable tent. And they put it right in the middle of their camp. And God moves in. And he is there so he can be among his people and they can meet with him. 
And they lived there at Mount Sinai for about a year, camping out, getting to know one another. And so just so you get the timeline of the books of the Bible, Genesis, God creates the world, we break it, God goes to Abraham, says, follow me to the place I'll show you. Abraham goes to the promised land. His grandson, Israel, Jacob, leads them out. In Exodus, God rescues them out of Egypt. And Exodus ends with them camping at Mount Sinai, getting to know one another for a year. Your next book is Leviticus. In Leviticus, God gives them the family rules. Stuff like, here's all our celebrations that we're going to, all of our parties and traditions we're going to have. Here's how I want you to treat one another. Here's how I'm going to heal you when you get sick. Here's stuff like, you know, clean your house when it gets moldy. And don't sleep with your mother-in-law. And, you know, just good family rules. Which kind of make you think, what was happening during that year that God had to save these rules? But um, that's the book of Leviticus, okay? And um, so after Leviticus, they know each other. And, and now they're ready to move on uh, to the promised land. The problem is... The whole time, the Israelites had been saying, yes, we'll be your children. They're afraid of God. They're just afraid of him. It's like um, they're abused kids who are rescued. And and they're taken and saying, look, there's, there's these nice people who want to adopt you. And the rescue kids are like, okay, because what else are they going to do, right? And so they go through the adoption ceremony, but the whole time, they're just anticipating when these new parents are going to neglect and abuse them. And that's exactly how the Israelites treat God. And they treat them that way during that year at Mount Sinai. And then when Numbers, the next book of the Bible, picks up, they do a head count, make sure they got everybody. They pack up, and by chapter 10, they're moving out. And it's an 11-day journey to their new home, the promised land. Just 11 days, okay? Let's see what happens in those 11 days. Flip to Numbers chapter 11. Um, It's marked with a green post-it note in your Bibles. And thanks to those who helped put the post-it notes in our Bibles on Sunday mornings. Numbers... Chapter 11, verse 1. 11-day road trip. Now the people complained about the hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taborah. Because fire from the Lord had burned among them. It doesn't say that any of them died. But God was like giving them a warning. Right? He's giving them a warning. And I think it's interesting because we see before the adoption ceremony at Mount Sinai, they treat him awful. And he's patient. And he's patient. And he's patient. But now they're his children. They've had a year together and now he has higher expectations that they're going to trust him especially on an 11-day trip 
you know? All right, next verse, verse 4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing. Not complaining, but wailing. And said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate at Egypt at no cost. Okay, just think about that statement for a minute. No cost? Yeah, because you were slaves. Right? Oh my goodness. Okay. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlics. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. I love God's response. It's verse 18. Find verse 18. The little number. This is what God says. Tell the people... Consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. (laughs) Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five or ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? I think it's interesting because the first thing God does is um, after he says this is not send the quail. The first thing God does is help Moses. Because not only have they been rejecting and doubting and attacking God, They've been rejecting, doubting, and attacking Moses. And so the next thing God does is say, gather 70 of the elders of Israel, and I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in them, just like I put it in you, Moses, so that they will have faith, and they will prophesy and lead the people in what is good and right. And I think it's so telling that in that moment, even when God is like ticked off and angry, he still sees Moses and he still helps Moses. And he gives the people better leaders, or more leaders, I should say. And then he sends a quail. And they eat. And they eat. And the ringleaders, who were so greedy for meat and just gorged themselves on it, God causes to die. And this is hard for us to read. Um, Frankly, it's... I'm not going through all the stories of their complaining and rebellion. There's a lot of them, just hitting a few. But there's more than one where God causes the ringleaders of the rebellion to die. And that's hard for us to understand. It seems harsh from our point of view. But we have to look at it from God's point of view, okay? So I want you to put yourself in God's shoes for a moment. You're a God who loves the human beings you created. And you see this group in captivity, they're enslaved, their children are being slaughtered, and you have mercy on them. And you rescue them, and you lead them out, and you're bringing them to a safe place. But there are some in that group that refuse to go, and they are stopping other people from going. And so you do miracles, 
you're gracious, you give them bread every morning, you know, like everything. This has only been a year and a half time, you know, since he first brought them out of Egypt. He's done tons of miracles. Still, they don't believe. And they refuse and they complain and they spread lies about him. And they convince the others, we need to go back to Egypt. What do you do if you're God? What do you do? You have two options. You can either let the whiners and complainers win and lead everyone back to slavery in Egypt, including the children. Or you get rid of the whiners and complainers and lead the ones who are willing into the free land. That's the only options. And that's what God does. He gets rid of the ringleaders and then he will continue on with those who are willing to follow. And so they get to the edge of the promised land and they see Goofy. They're too scared to go in. And again, there are some that spread bad reports and lies and they say, God is leading us to our death and the the men are going to be killed and the women, our children, are going to be taken captive. And so Numbers 14 records what happens. I have this one up here for you. And I just, I just got to thank Lori and Spence and Alex and all of our praise team because we had a, not only was it just a hard morning because one of our praise team members isn't even here. But we had all these tech issues and computer crashes, and they just worked so hard. So thank you, guys. We appreciate it. They did not get scared of the giants this morning. All right, but the Israelites, Numbers 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, what did they say? If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. You know, they were willing to die anywhere except where God wanted to bring them. Um, Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And I think the Lord's response is so telling. In verse 11, this is what he says. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe me in spite of all of the signs, all of the miracles I have performed among them? Can you imagine if your kids came to you and said, I wish I was a slave. It would be better for me to be a slave than to be with you. They despised God. They despised him. And what is he supposed to do at this point to change their minds? In a year and a half, could he do any more miracles that would change their minds? If they don't trust him by now, they never will. They never will. So does God let them go back to Egypt and take the innocent children with them to be enslaved? God is angry, but he's still patient. 
He is still patient. And he says, okay, you don't trust me? Fine. You don't want to go into the land of freedom? Fine. I will wait here in the wilderness with you. I will wait right here. I'm not going to let you take yourselves and your kids back to slavery, but we're going to wait here for 40 years until you die, and then I'm going to take your kids in. Numbers 14, verse 26. This is the same chapter. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, Surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing I heard you say. In the wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years or old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand. That means like this. I swore, I made a promise to make your home. Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them to enjoy the land you have rejected. What is totally mind-boggling to me is that God stays with them. Even though they hate him, even though they clearly despise him, God stays with them for 40 years in the wilderness. My friend, God loves you. And he wants to lead you to a better place. And it's a place where he'll bless you and cause you to be a blessing. And he's very patient as he leads you. He is very patient as you doubt the first time, the second time, the third time. And even if you give up on him completely, he stays with you. And he waits. But be afraid. Be afraid. Because God will give you what you ask for. You want quail? Okay. You want to die in the wilderness instead of going into the promised land? Okay. God will wait until you either repent and follow him or you die. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You should fear the Lord because he does not let his children go undisciplined. He does let you reap what you sow and experience the consequences of your actions. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. The fullness of wisdom is when you follow God into the promised land and you taste and see that he is good. And you come to know him and know that his ways are good. That's the fullness of wisdom. And so you have to follow and trust him in your In your home life, he's going to lead you to a better place. In your marriage, in your romantic life, if you do things the way he asks, he'll lead you to a better place. In your work life, if you work like God says to work in his word, he will lead you to a better 
job and work life where you are not running yourself and your family into the ground. In your finances, if you trust him with your finances, like he says to, and you follow his rules about finances, he will not leave you broken and with no provision. He is going to multiply your resources and take care of you. And he will ultimately lead you not only to a better home life and and a better romantic life and a better work life and a better financial life. He will ultimately lead you to the next life where there is no more sorrow and no more shattered dreams and no more death. But we doubt him. How many times do we think, you know, if I just fully obey God, he's going to take away all my fun. If I fully trust God with my work, I'm going to drown in bills. Right? I mean, all the time, we doubt that if we do what he says, he's going to bless us. You know, if I give my whole life and I follow God, this was me when I was younger, I'm going to end up being like a missionary in the Amazon and (laughs) like covered in mosquito bites and all alone. You know, like (sighs) he leads us to good places. He leads us to good places. But how often do we say we're his children and we say, yes, we're following you, God, but we are complaining and whining the whole way and fearing the future that he's leading us into. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. So trust him fully. Not just part of the way, but all of the way. Trust him even when he's leading you through the wilderness because he will lead you through wilderness times. He will lead you through the valley of the shadow of death at times. But he is faithful. Remember his miracles. Remember his provision this morning is a gift from God. Every breath we have is a gift. Every morning, the breakfast we eat is a gift. Every morning he provides for you. And ask God to give you his spirit, just like he gave it to Moses and the other 70 elders, so you have the courage and desire to follow him to the better place he's leading you. Let me pray with me now. God, you are good. You are good. Forgive us for when we doubt it. You are the God who created us, who breathed life into us, who made us in your image so we could rule. God, you are the one who gives us gifts and abilities so we can be a blessing. You're the one who gives us purpose. You're the one who gives us breath to breathe and rains down every day, clothes for us to wear, food to eat. You're the one who shelters us from the cold. God, you are good and you are patient with us. And you are long-suffering. And you are faithful. 
You do not fail us, God. And so I pray that you will pour your spirit out upon us and give us courage to follow you. And God, we ask your forgiveness for when we have whined and complained and despised you. When we have despised you, God, by fearing the future you're leading us into and assuming you're abandoning us and you won't provide. Forgive us, Lord. And teach us your ways so that we may fully obey you and fully enter the good life you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, um, we're going to be baptizing at least four people that I know of. Um, Yeah. If you have never chosen to come fully follow God, or maybe you have and you've gone off on your own way, and it's time to rededicate yourself to the Lord, and you want to be filled with His Spirit to give you the courage and desire and help you discern how to follow the Lord, I encourage you during these songs to come back and meet me at the cross, and I'll be happy to talk to you about that. And happy to talk to you about baptism and becoming filled with the Spirit of God. Thank you.